The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Father, we thank you that you speak, and uh, it's my prayer that you'd speak again right now through your Holy Spirit. Lord, um, we each need to hear what you have to say, and we need to see Jesus. So Lord, will you please send your Spirit and glorify your Son in a new and a precious way for us, that we would uh, see him and trust in him, delight in him, and want to live for him more and more with greater passion, greater wisdom, greater zeal. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're taking a break from uh, what we've been doing. We've been thinking about what we're saved to as Christians for the last several weeks and been going through the fruit of the Spirit. But um, a good friend gave me the idea that since many of our women are on retreat, he said, you know, I think you should preach on biblical masculinity today. And I thought about it, and in the end I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I hope that's not disappointing to you. I hope it's at least curious to you. Um, And even if it's, maybe you're like, oh, I'm done with men. Or, um, or you're not ever going to be a man. Listen, men, men are a part of our lives. And women are a part of men's lives. And we can't be either one without the other. And I'm not just talking about marriage, I'm talking about in every way. Brothers in Christ need sisters in Christ. And, and I mean need. Sisters in Christ need brothers in Christ. And we need to know what God thinks about what being a man actually is. So just in your own brain as I ask you that question, what does it mean to be a man? What ideas or feelings come to mind as I ask you that? Some things that come to mind might be like uh, cultural stereotypes, okay? If you're a precede me by a generation, John Wayne is like the man's man, right? Maybe he still is. Um, But what do you think about John Wayne? Well, he's independent. You don't need anybody else, right? Isn't that what it means to be a man? All by myself and just fine. Me and my horse. Um, Marlboro man, right? Me and my cigarette. But the point is, I don't need anybody. I don't talk much. I'm loyal. But that, is that what it means to be a man? Or James Bond, right? That's universal. Is that what it means to be a man? Reckless womanizer? Is that what it means to be a man? Uh, courageous? Save the world. That's what James Bond does, right? Every movie. Saves the world. Is that what it means to be a man? Secret agent. Um, you know, so far, we're all deflated because most of us don't have horses and we haven't saved the world. Media tells us a lot about our cultural views of men or stereotypes. In college, I watched way too many episodes of The Simpsons. Anybody watch The Simpsons? Okay. Um, What does Homer Simpson teach you about being a man? (laughs) Right. Drink a lot of beer. um, Be kind of stupid, but it's okay as long as it's funny stupid. And it'll all work out in the end. Listen, I hate watching sitcoms. The other night I was flipping through some. I almost want to throw up in my mouth every time I see one. Because guess who the dumbest person is in every sitcom you ever watch? It's the dad. Just a mindless nothing. Um, And that's... so. But what is our culture seeing all the time? You're either chasing women or you're a complete idiot or you don't need anybody. Are any of these things what it means to be a man? No, so what I'm telling you is our culture has no stinking idea. Not only that, you know, as they're giving us images of sports, right? And hey, I love sports. I love to watch sports. There's some awesome things that happen on the sports field. But is it, what, does it mean you dominate your opponent into submission? Is that masculinity? Win. Cream your enemy. Is that what it means to be a man? Not only that, culture's telling us some other things, like, for instance, a biological man won Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year not long ago, okay? A biological man won Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year not long ago. So that's telling you what gender is a matter of choice and feeling. It's like fashion. It's kind of there, but it's not objective, 
It can be changed at any time. Listen, if that's true, there's no such thing as masculinity or femininity. It's not even real at all. So what does it mean to be a man? You see why this is important? I remember this question echoing out in me when uh, my first son was about to be born. And I was feeling so sober about this that I had this little boy that was gonna be under my charge, under my care. And you know, questions like, what, how, what, do you, what do you do with a little boy? I mean, I know you love him and you raise him, but raise him into what? Well, what's the answer? A man, okay. And what's that? Does the Bible talk about this? Does it say anything about this? Or are we just left guessing? Is there such a thing as actual masculinity and femininity, male and female, that's ontological, metaphysical, big words meaning it's real whether or not you feel like it or understand it? It is. So for instance, gravity is. You can feel like you'll fly. R. Kelly, right? I believe I can fly. And when he jumps, because gravity is, is, is masculinity, is femininity, is gender, is it? Or is it just a feeling that comes and goes, changes? What you believe about God and what you believe about his word will have a huge influence on how you answer these questions. If there is no God, yeah, it's up for grabs, okay? But if you... If you believe in the God of the Bible, wow, that says some different things. So you know God is creator, and he's the source of all life and all that's good. And look at what he says in his word, Genesis 1.27. have a slide for that, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his what? His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So where do we get something like gender? Where did that come from? It came from God. Gender is a gift. It comes from him. We didn't invent it. It's given to us. And not only is it a gift, it glorifies God. So the, the way you're either a man or you're a woman shows the beauty of God somehow. Not only that, the way man and woman interact together shows the beauty of God. Ultimately, in marriage... The complementary union between male and female signifies the meeting of heaven and earth, our salvation. Husbands, love your wives is what? Christ loved the church. This is epic to us. Well, I'm not going to get into all of that today. Today, mostly I'm thinking about what the Bible says about being a man. And it really is for everyone. Um, some of us are men, and we need a reminder this is what's God, what God's calling us to. Some of us are becoming men. You got any young, young dudes in here? I see you, all right? I love you. You're gonna be men, men of God. What's it mean? Find out today. Number three, some of us are raising men. And number four, all of us are influencing men. All of us. You, sisters, you influence us more than you know. And as the Bible says, we, we can't even do this without you. We can't do this without you. So this is huge to see uh, what the Bible says. So I'm going to do this in kind of four parts or four episodes. Number one is going to be archetypal masculinity. Is it okay if I throw that? Archetypal. Um, that means like the ultimate model or example. The first one, and we were all supposed to be like that. It sets the stage. This is the, way, this is the way it was designed, archetypal masculinity. What was intended? What's the purpose? The second's going to be failed masculinity. That's not a hard one. See how we messed it up. Third one, ultimate masculinity. Where do we look to see it perfected? Hint, clue at this church. Can you guess? Jesus Christ, right? And then fourth is redeemed masculinity, because we've all messed it up, and we all need to be healed and fixed and changed by Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. Archetypal or ultimate masculinity, if you want. Failed masculinity, um, the perf perfect masculinity in Christ, and then redeemed masculinity. So here we go. Genesis 2.15 is where we're looking at archetypal masculinity. We read it together. So let's just start 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in. Where did he put him? A garden, that's a great place to start. A garden, and really, scholars will tell you this is a garden temple. Lots of ways to know this. Number one, um, 
You ever looking at the tabernacle, how it was made, the temple and how it was made, or even the picture of heaven in the book of Revelation? Guess what all these things have images of? Well, there's fruit everywhere and, and trees everywhere, the tree of life and branches. So, so this isn't just a normal garden. This is a temple garden. Another way we know that is that the commands here given to Adam are echoed later in the Torah for priests and Levites. Work it and keep it. Work and keep the tabernacle. So it sounds priestly. So we have a, it's a garden temple. And so the way you're supposed to see this, I think, is that God has given you, fellas, each one of you, kind of a, what do you want to say, a neighborhood you live in, a sphere of influence, your garden, people, relationships you have, roles you have, people you know, jobs you have. This is your garden. It's where you live. And it's a garden temple. You're supposed to live there with God and for God. So I think about my life. Um, who am I? Well, I started out as a son, and I had roles as a, as a son. And then I was a brother, and I've been a friend to a lot of people, and now I, I wear, I'm a husband too. So I, got, I have a wonderful woman in my garden, and I'm a father. I have five awesome kids in my garden, and I'm a pastor in a way You're in my garden and I'm in yours, right? Our gardens overlap. It's a fear of influence. It's the life we live and we're meant to live it with God and for God. He put Adam in the garden and then he put him in there to do two things. End of 15, do you see it? To number one, what was it? You with me? The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Second one, keep it. Okay. The garden comes with responsibilities, he didn't say, Adam, just kick it. Lazy boy, catch some rays. No, he gave him a job to do. Work it. it. Was this a choice? Did he say, Adam, would you like to work your garden? What do you think? No, it was do this, work it, and keep it. So how do you work a garden? Well, how about the word cultivate? Right? How about the word cultivate to um, that's what this means. He's, he's there. He's responsible to cultivate this garden. So to cultivate something, you know, some of you have plots over in an organic garden. Anybody ever gardened before or tried it? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad God didn't call me to cultivate an actual garden because I would fail. Um, but to cultivate something is to understand it, at least a little bit, and help it grow. Help something grow. Help it succeed. Help it Help it be a benefit. See fruit come from it. Cultivate. So, fellas, you got a garden. What are you supposed to do in your garden? Cultivate it. Okay. Some of you have amazing skills at cultivating, like, say, your car. I'm, I'm not even joking. This is a wonderful thing. You can see how it works, and you can make it better. When it's broken, you can fix it. Some of you can build anything. You can remodel anything. You, you have artistic brilliance. You're cultivating. You're building it up. It really hits the fan when you think about the people in your garden. What is your responsibility towards the people in your garden? Cultivate them. You build them up. You see how they work. You help them grow. You help them mature. But already we see that the responsibility works like this. It's a benevolent responsibility. It's a responsibility to give of yourself to make something else better. It's a serving responsibility. Adam, don't trash the garden. Improve the garden. Give of yourself, your time, your strength, your energy to make this place better. So what are we responsible to do, fellas? Cultivate. So this takes some time. You should think about this. Who's in my garden? And in what way? What are my responsibilities to them that God has given me? How can I build them up? How can I bless them? What's my role? And of course, you can have different responsibilities for different roles. You treat your parents different than you treat your girlfriend. You treat your kid different than you treat your neighbor. But for each one, you have responsibility to that person to build them up, responsible to cultivate. So you're giving yourself up to bless. Not only did he say work it, he said keep it. And this means to protect. You're responsible to protect. And of course, you can understand, you know, the thief breaks in in the middle of the night. Fellas, what are you going to do? You're going to protect your house, okay? Right? I understand. That part's easy. That part is easy. How do you, how do you protect people in other ways? 
How do I protect my children? Or what about this? Do you ever need to protect people from yourself? That's the biggest problem. Okay? You will have so many more opportunities to abuse someone with your own sin than you ever will to protect your house from a thief. In fact, you'll have billions of more chances to hurt someone yourself than you will to fight off some bad guy. We're all dreaming of the chance to fight off some bad guy. Because that's easy. Saving somebody from your own sin, that's hard. Protect. You gotta protect your garden. What does it mean? What does it mean? You gotta see the evil. You gotta see the danger and take steps against it. Right? You gotta protect the cultivating. Blessed by cultivating, blessed by protecting. But you see again, it's a benevolent responsibility. Adam has said, you give up yourself to bless and protect something else. So these two words, this really wraps it up. Benevolent responsibility, or if you want to call it responsibility to give yourself up to bless and serve others. Okay? Then there's one more aspect here to this archetypal masculinity. Look at verses 16 to 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what's this all about? Well, let's walk through it. First of all, God spoke to Adam. Right? Real simple. God gave Adam his word. What's Adam supposed to do with this word? Know it? That's key. This is going to get messed up one chapter later. You got to know it. You got to know God's word. Not only do you have to know it, of course, what else do you need to do? You got to do it. The text tells us this tree is right in the middle of the garden. So what's Adam doing? He's walking around in his garden doing his thing. What's he walking by all the time? Oh, there's the tree. Don't eat it. You got to know God's word. You got to do God's word. When? All the time. Not only that, add this up. If you're familiar with the story at all, does God ever give his word to Eve in the same way, at least in this story? No, he doesn't. So how is Eve going to find out this word? Adam's going to need to tell her. Know it, do it, teach it. Know it, do it, teach it. You read the Proverbs. How many times does Proverbs say, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son? What's he doing? You got to know and do God's word, my son. He's teaching. So listen, part of being... This archetypal masculinity is you cultivate those in your garden, you build them up. Two, you protect them. Three, you do it with the wisdom of God's word. The key word is wisdom. You got to know God's word. You got to do God's word. You got to teach God's word. Benevolent responsibility, giving up yourself for the blessing of others as you cultivate them, you protect them, and you do it according to the wisdom of God's word. That's what God's calling Adam to do. And you're responsible to do this. So for each one of us, fellas, you got a garden. Okay, you have relationships, you have responsibilities. What's God telling you to do in there? Build them up. Okay, so test yourself. Are you giving yourself up to build, to, to build it up? Second, you got to protect it. Are you awake to the dangers? Are you stepping in? And man, don't just think about, I got, a, I got a video security system on a house. Again, that's easy. Think of the heart. Think of the mind of the people in your life. How are you protecting them? Third, are you doing it according to the wisdom of God's word? You know, I get... Part of it is unfair because I like to read and God made me that way. But I get a little tired sometimes when guys are like, well, studying scripture is not really my thing. I think the Bible says that at the heart of being a godly man is knowing God's word. Now, some of us are more naturally nerdy than the others. That's me. My, 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 my uh, mom bought me a shirt that says, um, theology nerd, and I actually wear it with pride, because I am, I'm a nerd, I could read commentaries for fun, you don't have to be like that, um, it's okay, because if it were up, you know, I can't fix a car, I, I need you in my life, you know, 
we need one another. But don't, don't think that masculinity means you don't know or study God's word because it's at the heart of what God has called you to responsible because you can't cultivate right without the wisdom of God's word. You can't protect right without the wisdom of God's word. So you see this archetypal masculinity? I'm just kind of pounded in. What are the basics? Benevolent responsibility. That means you're giving up yourself for the blessing of others. Three major themes here. One, you're building them up. Work your garden. Number two, protect. Number three, do it according to the wisdom of God's word. Does that make sense? And the stakes are huge. What happens if Adam doesn't do this? Death. Death. All right. Well, now we're ready for failed masculinity. I have a, I have a text, a few verses from the next chapter in Genesis. Uh, you probably know the story. Everything was good, chapters one and two, and then we hit a real problem in chapter three where Satan himself comes, right? And where does he come, do you remember? Into the garden. And who does he talk to? Adam's beautiful, wonderful wife, made perfectly uh, to help him. He needs her. And he starts, what does he start talking about? Did God really say? Right? He's messing with God's word. He's, he's slandering God's character. And then he says, you should eat this fruit. You can be God. All right? And look at these couple verses. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband. Key phrase right here. Her husband who was what? With her. And he ate. So back this up. You got a garden. And then God so graciously gives Adam the, the, perfect, the perfect companion, Eve. So Eve's in his garden, okay? Now, what do you do if a big old snake goes into your garden? Kill it. That's right. Now, me, I'm going to put it in an aquarium and feed it rats. <laughs> I've got one of those. Yeah. But this is different because it's a talking snake. So what do you really do with those? You really kill it. Make sure it's dead. Okay. Um, talking snake comes into your garden. What did Adam do when the snake came into his garden? Nothing. That's the key word. Nothing. Um, God gave Adam his word, right? Adam was to know it and teach it. When that snake starts messing with God's word, twisting it, changing it, what did Adam do? What did he say? Nothing. Nothing. And Eve, his dear wife, starts to buy it, and she grabs that fruit, and she's holding it there and looking at it, about to take, she, she's into this. And what does Adam do? Nothing. And she bites in, and the only action he takes is to walk down that road with her. The word here is abdicate. It means to throw off responsibility. Who's responsible for that garden? He's got to work it. He's got to keep it. He's got to do it according to God's word. And when every single part of what Adam was responsible for was in crisis and in danger, he did nothing. He didn't cultivate. He didn't build up. He didn't, he didn't argue for the truth. He did not protect. He abdicated his responsibility. You know, you read through the rest of this chapter, God comes to visit What's up, everybody, right? He comes to visit. Who does he call for? It's real interesting. Who eats the fruit first? Eve. Who does, who does God call for? Who's, who's God knocking on the door for when he comes to the garden? Adam. Why? He's responsible. Well, she did it first. You're responsible. You're responsible. This is one of the core masculine sins. Abdicating. Sit home and play video games. Um, listen, I've been married for almost 16 years, done a little bit of marriage counseling, read a, read a couple books about it, heard other people talk about it. The most common hurt for a wife 
It's not that the husband is cruel and mean. Not most commonly. No, the most common hurt is that he just doesn't do anything. He won't engage. He's not trying to build me up. He's not doing anything with our kids. He's not around. He's abdicating his responsibility. You know, it tears me up to go to Haiti. We, we take care of these, uh, these kids in Haiti, o- OVC kids, orphan, vulnerable children. And guess how many of them have active dads in their lives? None. That's why they're in poverty. Now, some of it's just the tragedy of the place. They were killed in the earthquake. But some of it, they left. The men left. They abdicated. They left. They didn't, they didn't want to be with the wife because the wife takes work, and they didn't want to take care of the kids because the kids take work, and they just split. They abdicated. They didn't necessarily hit them or say mean things. They just, they just left, and it ruins an entire culture. You ever been hurt from a man abdicating his responsibility? I've had dear friends. I remember this dear friend. I got to do her wedding several years ago. She was the most delightful, delightful young woman, smart, uh, just kind. Um, she never had her dad say that he loved her, never once. And she, and and you know, she she finally talked about it, and she'd be like, "It's hard for him." I'm gonna be like, "Hard for him." What, what is this thing pretending to be a man? It's hard for you to say you love your daughter. What is that? That's abdication. You build that girl up. It's hard. Build her up. Cultivate her. You're responsible. That's one sin, abdication. Fellas, where are you abdicating? Now listen, I'm not up here. Well, I am up here and you're down there, but that's not because I think I'm better than you. It's so you can see me. Um, I've abdicated a lot, okay? I, I, have, I have character flaws. Laziness is one. I could be really lazy. I've abdicated relationally. You ever done the cold shoulder? You don't know what to do? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes guys get confused by the women in their lives. <laughs> I know she, she's wanting something, needing something, and I'm just like, it's not her fault. But instead of in, engaging what do we do sometimes? Head for the hills, right? No, man, go in, ask, seek, initiate. It's a responsibility. It's your wife. It's, she's in your garden. Cultivate, build her up. Protect her from your cold-hearted passivity. Where do we abdicate? Ask the Lord to show you. On the other side of abdication, this is what Adam's sons love to do. And you see this follow right through in Genesis as well. Genesis 3.16 gives this tough line. I've got a slide for this. This is actually part of God's curse over sin, part of the death that sin brings. And he says to Eve as part of the curse on her, for her sin, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Interesting debate because at first you're like, wait, is it a curse for a woman to have desire for her husband? No, okay. If you're a husband, do you want your wife to desire you? Yes. Do I stand alone in that? Yes. Okay. You know, later when God's talking to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Same context. That's what desire means there. Due to sin, there's going to be basically gender wars. And now instead of this teamwork and this complementarity, the woman's going to want to subvert and control and manipulate. Does that happen in sin? Yeah. And then what's the fella going to do? He's going to rule over you, and that is not a nice thing. That's not the way it's meant to be. So you see the second masculine sin here is domination. Domination. One's abdicate. I'm just, I'm just not going to do anything. Dominate. I'm going to control everything with a hard hand, with force. The first example of this is in Genesis 4, 23 to 24. Here's a, every gangster rap's biblical hero. Check this fella out. I'm telling you, this is right in Genesis. It follows, follows the train of what's happening. Genesis 4, 23. Lamech said to his what? Wives. What's curious about that? First time polygamy right here. It wasn't pre-sin. It's post-sin. People tell you, oh, the Bible's for polygamy. You're like, Read it again. 
okay? Read it again. Oh, the Bible's for polygamy. There's not one story where it goes well. Read it again. Lamech, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. And then what does he say? You wives of Lamech. Have, <laughs> have any of you ever talked to your wife this way? <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, wife of Matt. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but have you seen the really cool dudes talk about themselves in the third person in the interview? People do this. It's this weird pride thing. He's, he's got them, they're like his property, and he's got two. He's dominating. And then look at what he says. I've killed a man for wounding me. What is that? Okay, you, you hurt me a little bit. I'm bringing it back big time. Revenge, power, bitterness, Right? I've killed a young man for striking me. You hit me, I'll kill you. I'll bring it back bigger. And then verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. Real interesting. Who said that Cain's revenge would be sevenfold? God said that. And Lamech says, oh yeah, God does that? I do 77-fold. He is saying, I am bigger and badder than God. That's what he's saying. And that is the heart of masculine domination that happens all over the world all of the time. How many cultures and countries do women not have any rights at all as human beings? How many times and how many places will men just use women for their bodies and leave them with children? Using, dominating. They're there, but they're cruel. And there's no, remember, true masculinity is benevolent responsibility. I'll give myself up for your blessing. A false masculinity is I'm here, but I'm taking for my blessing. Do you see the difference? Many of us, you've been hurt by dominating men, men who selfishly dominate. Fellas, where are you selfishly dominating in your life? You're not, you're not giving yourself up. Instead, you're taking, you're using where, does, where and when does it happen? So you've seen what archetypal masculinity is, benevolent responsibility. So you've given yourself up to bless others. You, you do it to cult, you cultivate, you build up, you protect from evil, and you do it according to the wisdom of God's word. And two major masculine that we, sins that we see in Scripture and everywhere are, number one, abdicating. I'm not going to do what God has made me responsible to do. I'm just not going to do it. Or the other one is dominating. I'm going to control. I'm going to push. I'm going to be cruel. And did it bring death? <laughs> Isn't it everywhere? It's everywhere. If I could hear all your stories, and I know some of them, do you have scars on you from this? Do you have regrets in you from this? These go deep. You turn on the news and the world, the world is crumbling from this. You look at the statistics on poverty and fatherlessness in our nation and everywhere else, and it's epic. This is huge, because men won't be men. Well, now we need to see perfect masculinity. Let me throw this verse up here, John 19, 5. I don't think Pilate quite knew what he said when he said this, but indeed it is true. John 19, 5, soak this scene in with me. Jesus came out, and what's he wearing? Crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to the crowd, what did he say? Behold the man. The man who was getting so much attention on that day. The man who's being mocked, right? That's what the robe is. The man who's being tortured, that's what the crown is. Behold the man. Hey, everybody, look. Who is it? The man. Why is he there? Why is he getting stripped? Why is he getting beaten? Why is he getting killed? It's good to remember that Jesus started with, some, well, after the birth thing. That wasn't normal. But he had a normal life. What did he do for uh, like 30 years? Submitted to his parents, it says in Luke. He obeyed his parents. Right, boys? That's what you do when you're growing into a man. You learn about authority. You learn about service. You obey your parents. And then he worked as a carpenter. You think he worked good? You think those tables lasted for a while? You think he had integrity? Or you think they fell apart when you tried to use them? I like to think they were solid and they were nice because he worked hard. But you know what he did? He dignified the normal life. 
He dignified the normal life. What do you do? I, I build tables. I take care of my mom. Jesus did that. God did that. That's good. That's good. You don't have to be James Bond. You need to be faithful. That's what you need to be. Be faithful. Be consistent. Proverbs talks about many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? You hear the heartache in that, right? So many guys make promises, but who's actually going to show up? The godly man will. Jesus did. But here he's wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe because he's on his way to crucifixion. What's he doing? Look what Paul says about Jesus in Romans 5, 16 to 17. And here in Romans 5, Paul is actually comparing Jesus with Adam. Comparison and contrast. Romans 5, 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. So set it up. What do we have on one side and the? Help me out here. Free gift is not like the one man's sin. How so? For the judgment following one trespass, what did it bring? Condemnation. Adam sinned, we all sinned. There's not one guy in here, right, who hasn't abdicated or dominated somehow. I have. I'm a sinner. And there's not one human in here that hasn't sinned against God's law. It brought condemnation, and condemnation is holy wrath. God is perfectly good, and he hates Sin perfectly, and so sin deserves condemnation. Adam earned that for us. Thank you, Adam. But the free gift following many trespasses, how many think that was? Cabillions. The free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. What does that mean? I like to use the idea of a book in a courtroom. Okay, here's your book. It's got all your life, what you said, what you thought, what you wanted, and it's open before God the judge, okay, and he's using his law, and what's the, uh, what's the verdict going to be on how you lived according to God's law? Mine will say, way guilty, so guilty. But Jesus, when you trust in him, Jesus becomes your mediator. And so he says, oh, wrong book, and he moves your book out of the way, and he brings up his book. And what are he doing there? His thoughts, his words, his deeds. And he says, my book now counts as this guy's book, this gal's book. This is their book now. And what does God the Father say about his book? Well, that's pretty much perfect. That is perfect. And we're talking about a free gift here. So it's a free gift from God that in Jesus, God will see you as what? Perfect. Justified. Don't you need that? I need that so bad, the gospel, a free gift. He just gives it to me for free, trusting in Christ. This is what Jesus did. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned. So what came from Adam, his abdication? Death reigned through that one, more, one man. Much more will those who receive, receive what? The abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. Adam brought death. Jesus brought life. What do you get to do by God's grace in Christ? Reign in life. New life with God as your Father. New life in the Holy Spirit. New life as a child of God. How did you get all this? One man sunk the ship. The other man saved us. Well, here's the issue. Jesus took responsibility for you. Isn't that the whole picture of the gospel? He took responsibility for you. What's biblical masculinity? Benevolent responsibility. I'm going to take responsibility for somebody else. I'm going to give them myself to build them up. To what extent did Jesus take responsibility for you? I'm going to come and wear your skin and live the life you couldn't live because you need my perfection and you don't have it, but I'll give it to you. And then I'm going to suffer on a cross. And I'm going to endure the wrath of God for every one of your sins. Stop and ponder and just enjoy the cross for a moment. Enjoy what Jesus did for you. How many sins you got? Okay, remember the really 
Go ahead and do it for a moment. Remember the really bad ones you're ashamed of you don't want anybody in this room to know? Kind of the secret ones? Or you've left those people out of your life because you just, you don't want to be. Remember those? Now remember the little ones that we think are little but they're not. You know how bad it is to be bored with God? It's the ultimate insult. You ever felt bored with God? (laughs) I mean, my sin pile is so deep and so wide And for Jesus to take every single one, because God's perfectly just. He doesn't overlook anything. He punished Jesus perfectly for every sin. He gave him everything I deserve. He did that for you if you trusted him. Jesus took responsibility for you. Who deserved the punishment? You did. Who took the punishment? He did. Behold the man. Behold the man lived a perfect life, tempted as we are, yet without sin. This passage in Ephesians 5 talks about marriage, but really it's about more than human marriage. Look at Ephesians 5.25. We see the perfect biblical masculinity of Jesus. 5.25, husbands, love your wives. Okay, you got, what's your, you, got a, you got a lady in your garden, what are you supposed to do with her? Love her. Can I get an amen somewhere? Amen. Yeah. Love your wives. How? Man, you don't even want into this. How? As Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He took responsibility for her. She messed up. He paid it. Fellas, if Jesus came to your house and knocked on the door and wanted to talk about your marriage... Your wife has a part to play and she's responsible for her part, but guess who he's talking to first? You. You're responsible. And you might say, it's not my fault, she did it. You're still responsible. That's not fair. What'd Jesus do for you? You want fair? (laughs) You don't want fair. Jesus took responsibility for you. That's the picture of his marriage to us. He paid it when it wasn't his fault. Oh, remember, remember what we have? Um, biblical masculinity cultivates. What is Jesus? Does Jesus cultivate us, his people? We see in this passage, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, cleansing her with the washing of water, with the word of God, so he might present the church to himself in splendor. Is he, is he building us up, giving us the fruit of his character in our lives? Does he prune us for our good? Oh, he's the ultimate cultivator. What about protector? Does Jesus protect you? What enemies does he protect you from? Well, in one sense, there's this providence, right? He reigns right now at the right hand of God. You ever had the sense that, man, you were about to eat it and somehow you got saved? And it could be a situation, it could be a decision, and you think, thank my heavenly star, somebody's looking out for me. I almost just, I think we've all had that many times. Jesus is sovereignly working in our lives, and yeah, he protects us. But more than that, you had a way bigger problem than that. What do you have coming to you? The wrath of God Almighty. That's not a, that's not a fun th- thought. But where are you going to run from that? What excuses are you going to give in front of that? And as that tidal wave, come, tidal wave comes and breaks, who stands in your place to take the wave? He protects you. He protects you from your own sin. He protects you from Satan and his accusation, his snares. He's the ultimate protector. And at what cost? His life. And does he do all these with wisdom? Does he give us his word? He doesn't even just give us his word. He is the word. He is our wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1. Do you see perfect, the perfect man in Jesus Christ? So here's where, look, we see see what we should have been, archetypal masculinity. We see what we are, failed masculinity. We see who he is, and we go to him. Let's go to him. Go to him. Listen, if you're broken by somebody's failed masculinity, Jesus is the healer. 
Jesus is the king. He's the healer. He heals. Go to him. Jesus isn't like all the jerks we've had in our lives. Jesus is faithful. Go to him. If you've done the hurting, if you've done the hurting, go to Jesus. He'll forgive you. He forgives. He makes you righteous. Go to Jesus, the ultimate, ultimate man. That brings us to redeemed masculinity. So many wonderful texts we could go to for this. I'm just going to give you one little line in two verses. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 13 to 14. Look at this verse. Two lines Paul gives at the end of this book. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Do you see wisdom and integrity in this passage? Stand firm, where? In the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Feet firmly planted on the gospel. Don't move. Stand there. Jesus stood for you. You stand on him. Do you see protection in here? What's the first phrase? 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be what? Watchful. Where should you be looking? What what is he talking about? When you cross the street. It's deeper than that, isn't it? Where do you need to look? You need to look in here. You need to look in here. Have you kicked the porn habit yet? Are you being watchful? How are you treating the ladies in your lives? Are you being watchful? Are you greedy? Are you looking? To be watchful is like there's enemies out there. I gotta, I gotta keep awake. The, what does the enemy want from you? He wants you to be abdicating, lazy boy. You're easy to fight that way, okay? Are you watchful? Are you going to God with your, your needs, your hungers? Are you repenting to him of your sin? Are you protecting others from the sin that's in yourself? Be watchful and take responsibility. Do you, do you see responsibility in these verses? It says, Uh, Act like men, be strong, and I think what he means here, act like men, is be mature. Have the integrity of someone who's mature, not just a kid wavering back and forth, not knowing what he's doing. No, be be mature. Know who you are in Christ. Know what you're after, and be strong. Paul says in other places, be strong in the strength of the Lord. So we're taking action, but we're not dominating, because verse 14, let all that you do be done in what? Love. Everything in love, because Jesus stood for you, stand on him, and stand for others. Do you see that? Because Jesus stood for you, stand on him, and stand for others. Cultivate, protect that garden with wisdom and integrity. One last word for the ladies. Um, The only time in Genesis 1 to 2 where something was not good, do you remember what it was? Good, 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 everything's good. There's Adam alone. That's not good, right? That's what God said. It's not good for man to be alone. We know that's, that's about marriage. It's also just about community. We're made in the image of God. Nobody should ever be alone. We need one another, just in general, right? It's also about men can't be men alone. So the John Wayne thing, throw that out. Me and my horse, no. Me and my cigarette, no. Can't do that alone. We need one another. We need brothers. And we need sisters. Whatever kind of a man I am, my wife makes me that kind of man in so many ways. I need her clarity. Wives give clarity, helping us to see what we're about, see what needs to happen. I struggle with initiation. She helps me see so I can play my part. Wives give clarity. So listen to that. It's God's voice so many times. Clarity. Sisters gives clarity. Listen, if you're single and you hope to be married one day, what kind of a man are you looking for? I want to know this. My daughters are in here. What kind of a man do I want them to want? 
He's cool and wears the right clothes? Please. Right? He's cute? Please. Look at the men in this room. Cuteness dies. How long does it last? I mean, it's just... <laughs> Ruggedly handsome, okay? R ruggedly handsome. You want to build your life on cute? No, no, no. Will he give himself up for you? Will he give himself up for you? It starts when you're dating. You know, guys, guys use the physical thing. Hey, baby, I just need this. I love you. Why, why is he taking? Why isn't he giving of his own desires to bless you? That's what it really means to be a man. I need this, baby. I'm a man. Ha, you're a boy because you don't know it. You don't know what masculinity is yet. Ladies, what's your standard if you're not married yet or you're thinking about it? What are you looking for? We need your clarity. This is what I'm looking for. I want a man, repeat after me, okay? He's benevolently responsible. He gives himself up for the blessing of others. He cultivates, he protects, especially from himself. And he does it with the wisdom of God's word. If you're not getting close to that kind of arena, not interested. I should be getting amens, okay? If you are married, beautiful. We need your clarity and we need your encouragement. We need your encouragement so bad. You can do it. Great job. Thanks for trying. I appreciated how you stepped in there. Sometimes we try and we didn't quite do it right, and it, and it was just like the balloon. You, no one can, can fizz out our masculinity like you. Seriously. We're not meant to have this all by ourselves. You build it up. Sisters in Christ, maybe you're not married or you... Hopefully, we all have relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you foster this kind of an idea from a brotherly, sisterly way? How are you encouraging? What are your, what's your clarity? What's your expectations? What do we want for one another? Is it a biblical idea? Because, again, we can't be men alone. We need your clarity, your wisdom, and we need your encouragement, your grace. And encouragement gives, means what? to give courage. I accept you. I love you. I think you're great. Keep going. You can make it. Jesus stood for us. Let's stand on him and stand for others. Because remember, listen, I've only dealt with one half of the coin today, but gender's a gift from God. And it glorifies God. Men, men and women need one another. And this world needs biblical men. So let's be that. And let's build it up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've given us in Jesus Christ. Confess all my failures, all my weaknesses. They are many. And we thank you so much that Jesus took responsibility for us. He builds us up. He saves us. He makes us right with you so that in his grace... And in his strength, uh, we can stand and be the men you've called us to be. Lord, help us to be that kind of place, those kind of people. We pray it in Jesus' name.